Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. There are too many people in this country who see every civil rights gain, every advancement for African-Americans coming at the loss to whites. This moment is so important to understand, not just in light of history, but in terms of the way history haunts. Welcome to History Is Us. I'm Dr. Eddie S. Glaude Jr. Join me in this six-part documentary podcast series as we journey through history to face the ugly truths at the heart of the American story. It's all history. It is a repeated conflict over who counts. Throughout this series, we explore who we are as a nation and what race might reveal about our current crisis. Listen to History Is Us, a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals and John Meachin Studio. Available now for free wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Grace Lynch. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Uh, Ravi is gallivanting around Italy, right, Grace, I think? He is traveling today. And you know what? I want to acknowledge that Ravi's traveled a lot over the last few years that we've been doing this. And this is the first pod he's had to miss for travel, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, I've like, I've probably missed some for like really, really dumb reasons. So always good reasons. Yeah. Always good reasons. <laughs> always good reasons. <laughs> oh, and I would love to wish Diana a belated happy birthday. I will relay that uh, when I go back downstairs. Um, I think she had a pretty good birthday. She had the kind of birthday you have when you're uh, a mother of two. Are either of you big birthday people? We don't do gifts. We don't do parties at our age, although we have joked about, I think this would be awesome. Because you know, the other thing when you're our age and you have young kids, you spend a lot of your uh, life just going on the weekends from kid's birthday party to kid's birthday party and like running Absolutely. the target beforehand and getting the thing. And and so what we've talked about doing is, because uh, my birthday is May 4th, hers is June 21st, is one of these summers doing a combined Jason and Diana birthday party and inviting all of the parents of all the kids who we usually go to these parties at and having them get sitters, but renting out like a trampoline park or one of the places where we usually have these parties. And and even like having the staff do like the goodie bags afterwards, have them come in and like have the cake and treat us like children. I think that would be completely awesome. I think that's excellent. And with that, let's get to talking trash. Yeah. Uh, before we do, I should remind the listeners uh, that at the end of uh, this episode, or in a few minutes here, uh, we are speaking to Charles Booker, who is the Democratic nominee for the United States Senate in Kentucky. So uh, you have that to look forward to. All right. With that, let's talk trash. So this week, 
there's more of the January 6th committee hearings, and we're going to dive into more of the meat of those in a little bit. But first, we have a really delightful video from Senator Ron Johnson of the great state of Wisconsin, who was accosted by some press after it was revealed that one of his staffers tried to offer the vice president a alternative group of electors. So let's see or let's listen to some of the confrontation with Senator Johnson. There's no conspiracy here. This, this is a complete non-story, guys. Complete non-story. And these, these just these are interns. There's yeah. there's staff. Okay, we have no idea. But you, it was your chief of staff who sent this information over. No, it was, no, no, no. It was my chief of staff that contacted. He just came from the White House. Uh-huh. First day on the job, uh, he called up somebody he knew in the white in the vice president's staff. Hey, we got this. Uh, you know. Uh, and the vice president would don't deliver tests, and we didn't. I mean, and he does. You do know? Does he know? Who so Ron Johnson, who is an interesting cat in the sense that he's a crazy person who uh-huh. loves to be like out front on the conspiracies and the like most awful stuff, but then when people start to like press him and he starts to realize, oh, I might have like done something where I can get in real trouble. He just clams up, and I had nothing to do Ooh, with it. Me, a senator? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I never, I've never even heard of this person. Was it my chief of staff? I, I, I barely knew him. It was his very first day. <laughs> it's just like, ah, oh, come on, man. It's not like he got first day jitters and tried to like incite a coup. That's just not. That's not what happens. <laughs> yeah. He hadn't read the employee manual yet that says coup d'etats are frowned upon. He was just from the White House. He had no idea what he was doing. <laughs> I also love the use. Of of staff is like these people are staff yes. we can't expect anything from them they're staff it's just like how you talk to like a misbehaving dog that's like but a puppy he's learning <laughs> which is especially hilarious because on the hill that's really the people who know what's going on right like the chief of staff 100%. to the member is so much more likely to understand what's happening, including on their first day, uh, which, by the way, I doubt it was even true that it was his first day, because that just seems like a lie that Ron Johnson would make up. But I also like that he wants us to believe that this attempt at at an overthrow of the United States government was orchestrated by interns. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, just a bunch of interns involved in some tomfoolery, just, you know, just some pranks, uh, just some rough housing, you know. Uh, also, just for context, for those listening, if you don't know the whole thing, like the text exchange, you know, he keeps saying I wasn't involved and nothing to do with me. The text exchange is like the senator has an envelope to give to the vice president. Like, when can the senator see the vice president and give him this envelope. He wants to give it to him. And they're like, we like do not do that. Yeah, the exact text was, do not give that to him, which I think is so hilariously worded. It's very much put that down, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. which I think is just excellent. Just <laughs> completely belittling. Do not give that to him. Yeah. Put that down. That doesn't go in your mouth. Get that out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so, so that is all... Uh, sad and fun at the same time. Um, but actually, so this is the part of the video everybody's talking about, but I want to roll it back uh, about 30 seconds to the part that most people haven't heard. So Grace, can you play the audio of what happens right when the senator is walking out of the Capitol and encounters the press corps? And just to paint the picture for people, w- what you hear should be matched to this image. He's walking out and he has his cell phone to his ear. So here you go. How much did you know about what your chief of staff was doing with the alternate slates of electors? 
No, you're not. I can see your phone. I can see your screen. So just in case you couldn't hear that clearly, listeners, that is Ron Johnson saying, I'm on the phone, and a reporter saying, no, you're not. I can see your phone. I can see your screen. So what happened is Ron Johnson saw the reporters, took his phone out of his pocket, put it to his ear, and just kept walking with his head down. Now, this is a this is a classic move, all right? He just executed it incorrectly. I want to be clear. Now, look, you should never do this when reporters want to talk to you. I used to do this as a candidate when uh, trackers who are always, they're, they're not well-intentioned. They don't actually want answers to their questions. The tracker's job is to shout controversial, you know, like trolling questions at you and then get audio making it seem like you refuse to answer these questions from a member of the press when in reality, it's just like somebody who works for the opponent's campaign yelling, you know, like, when did you stop beating your wife or whatever the heck, right? Wow. So, but when you do that, there's a way to do it. So the way I did it is I I would uh, do, I had a couple of options. One, if I would put it to my ear, I would pretend uh, to be having a very in-depth conversation about the Royals and their farm system. Sometimes I would just turn to the staffer next to me and have that conversation. Uh, I have a friend who had a routine where what they would do with these trackers is they would put the phone to their ear and they would have, and they did this for like a year, the exact same conversation with their daughter, who was not on the other end of the line, as if their daughter uh, was uh, looking at apartments in New York and and was like, oh, and so he would be like, Okay, so what's the square footage? Yeah, that's pretty good. Okay, what's the lease? You know, and he just did this the exact same every time. The idea being that no matter what video the other side would use from the tracker, it always had him having the exact same conversation about apartment hunting, which he just found funny. The key to both of those things is you have to be speaking like you have to actually be talking because otherwise they know that you can hear them. And Ron Johnson just was like, I'm going to put this phone to my ear and just keep walking as if nothing else is different. And that doesn't work. I hadn't even thought about the fact that he wasn't even speaking. He was just walking, holding a phone. Yeah, like he may as <laughs> well Holding a just... clearly off phone. <laughs> yeah, he may as well have just done that thing where you make your fingers into a phone and put it to his <laughs> ear, right? <laughs> like to signify, I'm on the phone. <laughs> so I just thought it was funny that, you know, before he provided ridiculous uh, answers to the questions, he tried in the most incompetent way possible not to have to answer the questions. All right, Grace, our news of the week uh, actually follows along on the same topic. Yes, it does. So on Tuesday, we had day four of the January 6th committee hearings. And this was all about Trump's plan to have fake electors, essentially, and kind of connecting the broader movement to sabotage the election to earlier actions by Trump and some of his closest allies. It included some extremely powerful testimonies from Speaker of the House in Arizona, Rusty Bowers. He said, well, we have heard that there is a legal theory or a legal ability in Arizona that you can remove the, the electors of President Biden and replace them. And I said, that's, that's, I've, that's totally new to me. I've never heard of any such thing. And he pressed that point. And I said, look, you are asking me to do something that is counter to my oath when I swore to the Constitution to uphold it. Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, two election workers who detailed how the president singled them out, which led to them receiving a ton of harassment, which has really derailed their lives. It was really devastating to hear. 
Ms. Moss, can you describe what you experienced listening to former President Trump attack you and your mother in a call with the Georgia Secretary of State? I felt like it was all my fault. Like, if I would have never decided to be an elections worker, like, I could have done anything else, but that's what I decided to do. And now people are lying and spreading rumors and lies and attacking my mom, my only child, going to my grandmother's house, her only grandchild. And I just felt bad for my mom and I felt horrible for picking this job and being the one that always wants to help and always there never missing not one election. I just felt like it was, it was my fault for putting my family in this situation. Jason, coming out of another hearing day, I want to know what your thoughts were from this day of the hearings and also how you think that we should be talking about what we have learned to the people in our lives. I have a couple of thoughts on it. Uh, first, a small thought, which is people seem to be very excited about Speaker Bowers from Arizona's testimony, but also really upset to hear him, I don't know if you saw this, he was asked, would you still vote for Trump in 2024 against Biden? And he was like, well, if it were Trump against Biden, yes, I would vote for Trump. And this is from a guy who said, you know, they pressured me, they tried to get me to break my oath, they called me and said, we have a bunch of theories, but we don't have any evidence, but we need you to do this anyway, we're going to give you some electors that are for Trump, so you know, instead of electors for Biden, so that you can just do an end around around the system. And as he put it, they asked him to break his oath. And people are like, how can this guy say he would vote for Trump? And I think my takeaway from that is, um, who cares? Like, it's at some point, you got to stop getting frustrated that people who are professional Republicans, like that's their job. Like that's what he does mm-hmm. for a living. He's the speaker of the Arizona House. Like, And also, I mean, many Republicans who didn't like Trump personally liked his policies a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And so I read that as like, a, of course, this is what he, this is how he believes government should be run. Now, these extra governmental activities is clearly what he took issue with. But it was not surprising to me that he was like, oh, no, no, I'm still a Republican. Yeah. And like, I I understand being frustrated by it, but like people need to have realistic expectations here. And and I think it is a realistic expectation to say when you are subpoenaed to testify under oath that you are going to testify under oath to the illegality of what you witnessed. And also, by the way, to make sure that nobody thinks that you participated in that like criminal behavior, which is what he did. He came and he was like, here's what happened. He wasn't there like Donald Trump is a bad person. He was like, this is what was said to me. This is what I said to them. He did what you're supposed to do when you get a subpoena. Right. And then people are shocked that he's still going to vote for them. And I just want everybody to remember that convincing voters who are the lead member of the lead member of their party in a legislative body to vote for us is not really what we're trying to do. Like, that's a little far. Yeah. But I think that what is what you can take away from that that trickles down to someone beyond Bowers himself is that when given the choice between Republican policies or a at least a purported slate of Republican policies with the opposition being the fragility of democracy becoming like increasingly, increasingly precious, that Republican policies are going to win. Yeah. And I think that that to me is interesting that this is someone who is very intimately aware of the lengths that Donald Trump is very comfortable going to overturn an election, to be anti-democratic. And that's okay. Because at the end of the day, 
they will get their Republican policies. So I think that it's telling about that slate of priorities, which I think is something that, of course, a speaker of the Republican-led House will say. But I think that that is indicative of a priority list that is shared by many. Yeah, which means it should motivate us in two ways. One, it should motivate us even more to be like, we have to win. My God, like we have to win if if they value uh, power over all else, right? In order to make taxes low and get the other policies they want, right? Um, taxes on rich people low. But then the other thing is it, it should just help us understand that one of the policy differences between us and the other side is democracy, right? Like, Right. I mean, like the RNC was actively enticed to be a part of this plot. I think what's challenging yeah. is that this this has largely initially, and I think the committee is trying to end this perception, but this has been seen as Trump and maybe his goons kind of going off book. But what we're finding out is that establishment members of the Republican Party were deeply ingrained and involved. Maybe Mike Pence didn't go along with it. Maybe Speaker Bowers didn't go along with it. But Senator Johnson was clearly trying to help. Um, there are other you know, members of the House that were clearly involved and trying to encourage this. And now we have new candidates all across the country who are running who are like, no, I this is something I'm aligned with. And I will say that out loud. <laughs> something that the I think the committee is starting to do and that I think is really important to underscore is that this is an ongoing threat. This wasn't Trump and Giuliani isolated in a room for a couple hours. This is a present threat that will continue. And these are the individuals who are continuing it. And they're doing so pretty out in the open. Yeah, it's an ongoing threat. And on top of that, we have to disabuse ourselves from lazily relying on what we were taught in school, which is things like America is a nation of laws, not of men. Yes, that is that is correct. In the, you know, it should be not of people, but it was said a long time ago. Uh, it 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 is correct in the sense that that's how it's supposed to operate. Like the institutions are supposed to hold, regardless of who's in charge of them. But what we have learned over the last few years is that that's not really how it works, and so who ends up in these positions, including positions that we didn't used to think mattered. Like, remember when you had no idea who the postmaster general was? Remember when you thought that the postmaster general was a thing that we used to have, but we don't have anymore? You know, I, I think it was like, like a year ago when Sudeikis, uh, when he was first promoting uh, Ted Lasso and he came on the show, I think he said, uh, I'm really frustrated that I, I know the names of more members of the Trump administration than I did of the Bartlett administration, you know, like in a reference to West Wing. Like, so mm -hmm. we have to know who these people are. We have to hold them accountable at every level because we, for, you know, a couple centuries, you know, excluding a period of civil war, got lazy about the idea that we have a system that will take care of itself. But the truth is, if you look at the way the system worked, if you don't have an extremely conservative speaker of the house in Arizona who just happens to believe that his oath matters and a vice president who is problematic in nearly every other way who just happens to have realized like, no, that breaking the country is the thing I'm not willing to do. I don't know what situation we're in right now or where it goes. I'm not sure Biden ever actually takes office or if there's a constitutional crisis, I don't know what would have happened. And we were that close and they look at it not as we are that close. We'll get it now. But what I want to say to that is they played their cards. Like we know their hand. And that's the difference is now we know exactly what play they're running. We know where they're going and we have the ability to stand in the way of it.
Another big thing that happened this week is the Senate has voted to advance bipartisan gun reform legislation to debate on the Senate floor. This bill is getting criticism from both sides that it is an infringement on gun rights and that it doesn't go far enough. Jason, how are you thinking about this legislation and how should we be framing this to folks who perhaps don't think this is going far enough? Well, I think first you've got to concede it doesn't go far enough, right? Like, But but so do all the Democratic negotiators on this. Um, Chris Murphy is like, yeah, obviously this doesn't go far enough, right? But he also points out that there, there are items in this that are going to save lives. And I agree. Um, when you look at things like something Shannon Watts has been pushing for for a long time and people have thankfully, I guess, been listening, which is uh, the quote unquote boyfriend loophole, right? That says, you know, if right now, like you can still get a gun, even if somebody has a domestic violence, like restraining order, you have a domestic violence misdemeanor against you. If you weren't married to that person, you can still get a gun. Which I don't think until researching how this legislation was addressing that, I don't think I really realized quite exactly what that boyfriend loophole was, was that you had to be like married or have a child with someone that does leave so many dangerous people and situations out in the open. And I'm I'm so happy that that's being addressed, but also apparently was something that held this up because people had to try to figure out how to legally define boyfriend, which is kind of hilarious to me. But <laughs> yeah, because I, I mean, that... like I've been with the same person since I was 17. So every conversation I have with someone younger than me about someone they're dating is basically this. It's basically me being like, so what's the term now? Is it talking? Is it, you know, and I just sound 5,000 years old. So I can't imagine <laughs> what this conversation in the Senate sounded like. I, I, by the way, hope that at some point, like, like John Cornyn had to like be explained, have it explained to him what hooking up meant. Or something like, I hope that conversation happened. God willing. <laughs> uh, but regardless, I hope that they gave a very liberal and generous yeah. interpretation. Yeah, as, 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 as wide as possible would save the most amount uh, of lives. Yes. And, um, exactly. But the point being that uh, it will save lives. And yes, it doesn't go far enough. But people need to understand, in my view, because some people argue, oh, well, they did this. It wasn't that much. People will say we did something about guns and we'll move on. Well, yeah, I guess if we don't hold them accountable, then they could do that. But if we hold them accountable, then it looks much different. If we hold them accountable, then this is breaking the seal. This is opening up the jar and increasing the chances that we can go back in and get more out later. Agreed. And I think that the breaking the seal metaphor feels right, because particularly for background checks, like it doesn't expand those writ large, but it does hone in on background checks for people who are under 21. Yeah, I believe so. Which is huge, especially since so many of our most recent and most devastating shootings have been perpetrated by people in their teens. So I think that that's a great place to start. That feels focused. That feels intentional. I think that's a good common ground agreement that we need to pay extra attention to this subset of people who seem particularly prone to committing acts of violence. And then perhaps we see that that's a great idea and we can continue to expand that. And there's people listening right now who are like, yeah, 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 but they don't want to do anything. So the idea that you're going to convince them that that was a good idea and then they're going to do more later, it doesn't make sense. No, that's a misread. Most of these people, I mean, look, you got some crazies who don't, but most of these of these Republicans in Congress understand whether they'll say it out loud or not that a lot of our gun laws or lack of gun laws make no damn sense. They just are convinced 
that it is vital to America that they remain in the current job that they're in, that they personally stay in it. And they think that if they go much farther on guns, then they're going to lose a Republican primary. So if you already have people who in their brain, whether they admit it or not, understand that universal background checks make sense, whether they'll ever say it out loud or not, if they then vote for something or see their colleagues vote for something that expands background checks even slightly, and then those people come back and survive primary challenges, well, now you've just equipped them with a little bit more courage to say and do what they've actually believed all along. So it's not a matter of convincing them. It's a matter of showing them that uh, it's okay to you know peek your head out of your hole just a little bit farther. So you've heard us talk about Athletic Greens so many times. And if you don't know what Athletic Greens are, it's one delicious scoop that helps you absorb 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. You've also heard us talk about the travel packs occasionally. I'm going to give you a tip. Let's say you have like a bottle of water. You're on the road. You're going to rip off the top of your travel pack and you're going to make a little funnel and put it in there. It's really easy. The one problem is sometimes the water is too high and it gets a little hard to mix it. Take like two good sized sips of your water and then pour your athletic greens in there. There's my little AG1 tip of the day for you. Right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Again, one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Some of you out there are sleeping on some saggy old mattresses at night. You deserve better than that. Give yourself an upgrade. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. I took the Helix quiz. I was matched with the Midnight Lux mattress because I wanted a medium firm feel. I sleep on my side and you put those things together and that's the mattress that uh, Helix said I needed. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to and the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. So just go to helixsleep.com majority 54, take their two minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10 year warranty and you get to try it out for a hundred nights risk free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority 54. That's helixsleep.com slash majority 54 for up to $200 off and two free pillows. We are pleased to have with us former Kentucky State Representative Charles Booker. Charles is the Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate in the state of Kentucky. He is facing the incumbent Rand Paul. His nomination is historic as he is Kentucky's first black nominee of a major party for the U.S. Senate. Previously, Charles served in the Kentucky House of Representatives, where he was the youngest black state legislator in nearly 90 years. Since then, he has founded a grassroots organization and written a memoir by the name of From the Hood to the Holler. Charles, First of all, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Honored to do it. And I want to start here. People uh, all over the country listen to Majority 54, not just in like Southern Missouri or in Kentucky. So for those people, what is a holler? Yes, uh, it is always a sense of great pride when I get to explain what a holler is. So uh, (laughs) 
if you live in communities like many of us do across Kentucky, uh, particularly in the hills in Appalachia, uh, you will find communities that are filled with hardworking people, dedicated folks, loving folks, but they deal with a lot of struggles. Um, and these are often areas that are in between the hills, uh, typically a valley that has a water source where homes are settled around. And, you know, they're, they're hollows, we call them hollers, and it's often been said that you can stand at the foot of a holler and essentially holler all the way to the back. Um, now, these are just areas where people live, often in Appalachia, but the reason why it resonated to me to tell that story of what it means from the hood to the holler is when I was exploring and traveling across Kentucky as a director of fish and wildlife, and I went into these areas that looked a lot different from my community in the hood in the Western Louisville and heard about the struggles and the challenges they faced. I was like, well, this is just the hood for white folks. And so mm -hmm. uh, it's really about a community that often gets ignored and overlooked, but these are hardworking people that deserve leadership and I'm fighting to make sure they have it. I, I, I totally agree uh, with your conclusion that it's, it's, it's a very similar uh, circumstance. I mean, at the end of the day, poverty can look very similar uh, to people, I think. And, you know, I think that this is also reflected longstanding theory I have in why two of the greatest uh, genres of music ever are country music and hip hop or rap, because, and because both of them so frequently tell stories and particularly uh, often stories of poverty. So like, right. I, I, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm trying to think of what like the the uh, hip hop counter to this or like a counterpart would be, but like, I'm thinking of like the Randy Travis song, uh, you know, deeper than the holler. My love is deeper than the holler. Like, anyway, it's like, it's a character in rural poverty, just as quote unquote, the hood is in, in urban poverty. Like here I am explaining this concept to you who literally wrote a book about the idea. I'm like, Hey, let me explain to you the concept of a holler. This has been White Guy Confidence uh, for the day, brought to you by Majority 54. Grace, get in and save me. Oh, oh no, no. We, we, we like to let you flounder. Um, Rep Booker, I would just love to know how it is that you then have gone about trying to convey to people that these, these struggles are one and the same and that you see a connection here and if you've received any resistance to that idea. You know, it's, it's really refreshing to say that whenever I introduce the, the notion that we have more in common than we do otherwise. And when I go into communities that may not look like mine, they may have mountains as the backdrop and instead of um, public housing. Uh, but when I highlight that our stories uh, are so similar, um, the response is just overwhelmingly, thank you. Why aren't we fighting together? Like that's the theme um, that I'm really seeing across Kentucky. And the way that we're really helping break down the silos is through storytelling. Uh, and so you're exactly right, brother. And we're, we're using music, we're using art, we're using creativity, we're using our own personal experiences. And I believe the power of my candidacy is that I've lived the struggles that I'm talking about, you know? And so when I, when I speak about issues like rationing insulin, I, I'm a type one diabetic, I've had to do that uh, to feed my daughters. And, and when I tell my story, the walls of division sort of fall down because they're no longer partisan. Uh, this is a state that was one of the first to go for Donald Trump. Um, it is a state that is 90% white, essentially. Um, but the message that I'm lifting up as a young Black man from the hood, one of the poorest zip coasts in Kentucky, is really transcending all the divides. And the country needs to see a race just like this. And um, we're going to win it. Let me 
ask this about what you were just saying. Like when you talk about people realizing, oh, wow, the struggles, you know, in Louisville are so similar to the struggles here in my rural community. And I didn't realize it. There's this phenomenon that I've seen in states like Missouri, like Kentucky. I'm, I'm curious if, if you've noticed this in Kentucky, where people from like the urban part of the state are convinced that all of the resources and all of the attention is going to the rural and suburban parts of the state. And then, but then when you go to the rural parts of the state, people are equally convinced that all of the resources are unfairly going to the urban parts of the state. That is so true. I mean, the, the urban rural divide, the, the idea of it is very real, it's very present, especially in Kentucky politics. And, you know, when I went to the state legislature, uh, it's so profound. It, it really dominates the political discourse, which is also why I felt such a responsibility to lift up my voice, because sure, I'm from the largest metropolitan area in the state, Louisville is, but the West End of Louisville actually has more in common with Appalachia than it does the rest of Louisville. Um, Louisville is one of the most segregated cities in the country. And so to be able to shine that light and really break through uh, the perceptions and look, our internet is crap too. Maybe not for the rest of the city, but in the, in the West End it is. And if you need to get to the hospital and you're using public transportation, even if you're going across town in Louisville, it can take you a couple of hours. We are just now on the verge of getting our first hospital in the West End, which is a area of about 80,000 people in over a hundred years. The challenges are so similar that as soon as I shine the light, it really is unavoidable. And it gives me the room to build coalitions with people that a lot of political consultants and pundits have thought is impossible. I think a question I have is that given so much of your personal experience, rationing insulin, you also talk about experiencing homelessness, the lack of access to hospitals or medical care, I feel like a lot of people with that lived experience would be pretty jaded that politics is going to do anything to help them. And I imagine that you run into that attitude a lot. And yet you've dedicated yourself to a life of public service and pursuing public office. I wonder why is it that you've chosen this route? Well, this is one of the things that I wrote about in my book. And I appreciate you mentioning uh, From the Hood to the Holler, because uh, we got to tell this story is out of a survival mechanism, really, for me, um, defying the odds and, and having faith faith in the face of impossibility is all I was taught. Uh, we don't have the chance to give in to cynicism. We don't have the time. We're trying to survive. We're trying to make it because there is so much of it and it's valid. And, and first of all, as a leader, I feel a responsibility to acknowledge that the, the apathy, the frustration, the cynicism that people feel is valid. I don't blame anybody for being frustrated. Honestly, if you're frustrated, you're paying attention. Donald Trump spoke to a lot of frustration in Kentucky. He was weaponizing hate and racism and all those things, too. But he spoke to frustrations that a lot of people felt that are being ignored. He said, your jobs are leaving. And folks are like, yeah, they are. He was like, there's a swamp. You're getting screwed. And people are like, yeah, we are. And I've lived that experience. And I can speak to that, too. But I'm doing it from a place of, look, let's beat, let's beat this together. Let's stand together instead of driving folks apart and there are folks that voted for Trump that have their MAGA hat that showed it to me. I'm like, Charles, I'm honored to organize on your campaign now. Something you said there, I think is really important when you were talking about the frustrations that Trump spoke to and the frustrations that you're trying to speak to, where you talked about, you know, people uh, are upset about the fact that jobs are leaving. And I think the layer beneath that is, and it's something I, I talk about a lot, is that people have an anxiety that if jobs are leaving, 
that their kids and their grandkids are going to have to leave to go get the jobs. And that, to me, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I do want you to speak to this. Like, I feel like in places like my state and like yours, we we make the mistake of thinking that the fight within the Democratic Party is one over whether to be liberal or whether to be moderate, when in reality, what we need to do is take our progressive values and pinpoint them directly on the fact that our policies are more likely to make it so that your kids don't have to move. And is that what you're feeling in Kentucky? That That is exactly what we're dealing with in Kentucky, because the truth of the matter is you're going to be hard pressed to find someone that does not want the type of progress that I'm fighting for. Um, and it isn't a partisan divide when it comes to that. But we have been so used to fighting amongst ourselves and really losing uh, sight on what we're really up against. And to your point, I mean, a lot of folks, even in my community, you know, the thought is, well, if you're going to succeed, you need to leave. And I feel a conviction to stay with my family and fight because that's what I was taught. And I also see the opportunity for us. And again, I'm, I'm excited to do my part in telling that story. To your point about telling that story, I have a question about some of your strategy and that I I hear you giving a very populist image of or a perspective on, you know, the economics that are facing both black and white Kentuckians. And there is a theory that Democrats in general should speak to economist populist ideas and kind of like leave maybe some of things like race to the back and that we shouldn't, you know, bring up these dividing lines. And yet you released a very racially explicit ad earlier this month in which you speak to the history of lynchings in Kentucky and its history of racism. You're wearing a noose in the ad. It's very visceral and visual. The pain of our past persists to this day. In Kentucky, like many states throughout the South, lynching was a tool of terror. It was used to kill hopes for freedom. It was used to kill my ancestors. The choice couldn't be clearer. Do we move forward together? Or do we let politicians like Rand Paul forever hold us back and drive us apart? So I wanted to know why you thought to make that ad and why or how race is playing a role in your campaign. Well, I first want to, to say that um, that that ad uh, was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I understand the power of storytelling, as we've been talking about. And you know, both my parents are ministers, so I know the power of being able to grab attention and communicate a point. And this was my idea. It fell in my spirit to really capture the magnitude of this moment, but also to really unpack how structural racism is weaponized to hold us back. And that was really the painful symbolism in the rope. There's a figurative sense of how lives were taken, including some of my ancestors. But there's also this more present uh, symbolic reality that our freedoms, our liberty, our ability to um, pursue our dreams are being robbed from us. They're being held from us. They're being denied. And how do we remove the rope? How do we remove those things that are holding us back? Well, we remove the politicians that are weaponizing it that are fueling it up. And, you know, the point that you raise about, you know, uh, economic populism, which there is a very real populist thread in Kentucky because everybody's falling off the cliff. And so we realized we got to rally together and fight back. We realized that, you know, regular folks are being crushed. And if you look at the electoral map, a lot of the people that voted for Donald Trump voted for Bernie Sanders. 
Like it's not really a partisan thread. It's who's actually going to speak to us. And the fact of the matter is, though, that racism is an economic construct as much as anything else. And so we cannot separate the two if we actually want solutions. And I feel a responsibility, not only as the first Black Kentuckian uh, to be in this position, but also just as a human being realizing we deserve healing and we can't fix what we don't face. And so, you know, Rand Paul saying he opposes expanded health care by comparing it to slavery is on purpose. Rand Paul saying that he doesn't want to address domestic terrorism that's fueled by white supremacy because of interracial marriage and the fact that churches are integrated so he doesn't think the problem exists is on purpose. The power of what we're doing is I'm showing that in a state that, you know, many stereotypes will say, oh, you're, you're a black man, Charles, don't you realize? You're not gonna be able to get support in a place like Kentucky. We're dispelling those stereotypes in the most powerful way by bringing people together. And I believe the healing that we're fighting for as Kentuckians will transcend for the country. It's really interesting because I have to imagine that uh, the conversations you had with consultants about that ad, uh, I imagine that there were a lot of people cautioning you about that as if, because what I think happens often with uh, political consultants is that they conflate uh, identity with policy positions, right? So like, like, let's say you were, or you have some view that is uh, on the progressive end of the spectrum. Consultants will say like, well, maybe we downplay that, but then they take your blackness and they will sometimes put it in the exact same uh, like compartment in their mind as that, as if that's a policy position you've chosen. And, and what I see you doing with that, with that ad is being like, look, I am a black man running for the US Senate rather than naively think that Kentuckians are going to be like unaware of that. How about I just speak directly to that experience? That's exactly right. I'm essentially I'm taking my power back in a lot of ways and hoping to inspire the people of Kentucky to collectively take our power back from that type of political division. And and, it, and it's true. We, we have to name it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to allow Rand Paul to blow dog whistles or at this point bullhorns because they're doing it to exploit us. I'm going to call it out, not to drive people into their corners, but to give us the chance to fight for the healing that we need together. And, you know, one of the things that I'll, I'll say, just in agreement to your point is, we need leaders that will lean into our, our integrity, um, our values, and, and essentially not BS folks. And, and when you do that, you find coalitions that will fight with you, even if we don't agree on everything, so look, I've been a supporter of Medicare for all for years. And my rationale is, look, I nearly died, not because I'm lazy or morally deficient. I was, I've was i been working multiple jobs ever since I got out of high school to help my family. And then I have three girls, each one is a mortgage. So I'm working multiple jobs to take care of them. And I had to choose between groceries for them or paying $1,000 to get my refills for my long and short acting insulin. I chose my girls, you know, and I, I speak from like that place of authenticity uh, because it it cuts through the chatter. It cuts it cuts through any of the division that could really be brought up. And and I actually agree. Look, universal basic income, financial freedom, um, addressing the climate crisis. I did a Green New Deal tour in the heart of coal country to make it clear that when you actually talk to folks. Yes, we want a sustainable future. 
no, minors do not want to go into mines and getting black lung and then be screwed because they can't get health coverage. People do not want to turn on their faucet and have orange or brown water come out. We want to have an opportunity to live a good life. And actually, my platform now is called a Kentucky New Deal. And I took some notes from Donald Trump. And so I was like, look, he can't be the only one that has hats. So we've been passing out hats all over the state. <laughs> they have Kentucky New Deal on them. And it's my vision of life, freedom, and prosperity for everyone and building a sustainable future. Can, can I ask something about that real quick? Um, the Like going into the heart of coal country and talking about the Green New Deal. I think an important part of the way that you're doing that versus the way that I think uh, it is viewed by, frankly, people from the coast who who hold the same uh, policy views as, as we do, is you understand that you can't say to coal miners, look, we're going to get you, we're just going to get you a new job. You're going to become a programmer. You're going to like, because what's inherent in that is what we talked about a few minutes ago, which is it's the implication is you're going to move. Right. Like if you're no longer if the if the coal mine isn't there, well, then the town kind of isn't there. Right. And so you have to message it in a way where you say this is important. We want sustainability. We don't want you to have to go into the mine and get black lung. But in a way that makes it clear that you're not trying to make them move away from their home. Right. That's the difference. Showing that respect. That respect. That's it. You, you treat people with respect like they're human beings. Um, not like they are morally deficient because they're trying to take care of their family. The folks that have gone into those mines were making heroic sacrifices to take care of their loved ones. They were essentially saying, I will do whatever it takes to make sure that my children can have food on the table, that I can take care of my home, invest in my community. And in a lot of places, that's the only job you can get or work at a dollar store, convenience store that doesn't pay enough. And so what I know from growing up in what has been the poor zip code in Kentucky and seeing jobs leave our community as well, first of all, a lot of those code jobs are already gone. Secondly, if you actually listen to folks, they'll tell you the solutions. They'll tell you the path forward. I was on the tracks in East Kentucky with some miners. Um, this was the Black Jewel Coal Company that filed bankruptcy, made national news. Um, they didn't give their employees notice didn't give them their last paychecks or benefits immediately cut off. So they stood on the tracks in protest um, to essentially say, stop screwing us. I went to stand on those tracks a couple of years ago and the miners were talking to me about the need to invest in solar and how they wanted to start their own business and have more uh, sustainable energy, but nobody ever listens to them. The future is not at the expense of the people that are closest to the pain. It's going to be led by the people closest to the pain. And I'm hoping that Kentucky can be an example of how you make that happen. Charles, best of luck to you. Thank you for coming on. It's a, a pleasure to get to talk to you. Thank you, brother. I appreciate your leadership and honored to be with you. All right. We are less than two weeks away from Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD uh, hitting shelves or hitting your doorstep if you pre-order it, that kind of thing. Uh, and look, I'm going to remind you of a few things. One, I'm talking to the listeners, not Grace. She knows these things. Uh, one, uh, all of my royalties from the book go to the fight against veteran suicide and veteran homelessness uh, via Veterans Community Project. Uh, two, 
look, if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, I get it. It's a soldier's memoir, but I'm not my dad. I'm not a 55, 65, whatever year old man who has a library uh, upstairs in his house full of paperback books by Stephen Kuntz that are just stories about war. Cool. Because that's not what this book is. There's one chapter in the book that is about a single day in Afghanistan so that you can get a flavor of what I did. And it's early in the book. And then after that, the whole book is about the, you know, coming of age tale of running for president of the United States uh, while dealing with a secret, undiagnosed and even unknown to you psychological disorder. So, you know, look, if you've heard that story before, move on, move to the next thing. But if you've never heard that story, perhaps you'll enjoy this book. I know you will. And then the last thing is, if you don't want to hear any of that stuff, I'll tell you what the book really is above anything else, which is it's a love story about a marriage trying to survive all those things, which is why you mostly hear from me in the book, but you also hear from Diana in the first person. So, all right, I'll stop selling for today. And I'll just tell you that you can go to invisiblestormbook.com and pre-order. And I hope you will. That was a great plug. Thanks. As a reminder, you can always call and leave us a voicemail if you have a question for Jason Ravi to contemplate. If you have seen something and you want to get their take on it, we love receiving your voicemails. I listen to all of your voicemails. Please call and leave us a message. You can call us at 508-687-2589. Again, that is 508-687-2589. Or you can email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. Again, that is m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. You can find Jason on Instagram and Twitter at Jason Kander. You can find me on Twitter at Grace Lynch 8 You can find Charles Booker on Twitter at Booker4, number 4KY. And our show is Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by myself, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbanile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.